you even now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're picking back up in the book of Matthew. We took a break last week to look at 1 Peter, and it's really great how providential God works because I could not have planned it any better for this passage to fit right well into 1 Peter. I would, maybe as the years goes on, I can be a better, better planner, and I could have said I did this on purpose, but I did not. But it will, you'll see how it really fits in with First uh, Peter's passage of how God chooses us to be saved, and it's by His grace, and what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again. And so we're continuing this theme for today's uh, title of the sermon is, True Faith Leads to New Clothes. Now, as you can probably tell, I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher by the clothes that I'm wearing, uh, but we're not talking about physical clothing. For sure. True faith leads to new clothes in the sense that true faith leads to acts of obedience. We will we'll be clothed with righteousness. We will be clothed with following Jesus, God's commands. Not to earn salvation, but it is the outworking of true faith. And I do want to give you guys a heads up and, um, and perhaps a warning. For the next few weeks, we're going to go through some tough, tough passages in the book of Matthew. By tough, I mean we're at the point in Jesus' life where his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes are really picking up steam. And he will not hold back on the refutation of them, and he will give them a pretty harsh judgment in hopes that, they, that we today would hear that um, and repent of our sin and not be like the Pharisees and see the grace of God even in the midst of all this. And so two weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus actually predict that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the people would actually reject him. He predicted and prophesied that they would kill him and that anyone else who rejects Jesus as the Messiah, uh, who rejects him as their savior and king, he said that they will face judgment. And so we're kind of going to be picking up on similar themes today. Because Jesus will tell a similar parable to the one two weeks ago. Remember, we talked about the wicked farmers of the parable, who the they they killed the the kings, the landowner servants, and they eventually killed the son of the of the king. And so today we're going to see a similar parable with similar themes of people rejecting Jesus, people rejecting the Son of God. It will be the story, the parable of the wedding banquet, which is going to be our first point today. So we'll see first the, how wedding clothes of a changed life. We'll look at the wedding banquet parable, and we'll see the wedding clothes of a changed life. We'll see themes of rejection of God. We'll see the judgment of God. But again, in the midst of it all, we'll see the grace of God. And then second, because uh, what kind of clothes we're talking about um, will lead into how we act. And so here's some, we'll have some, a really practical application of what does it mean to have a changed life? Um, and we'll look at giving to God first and primarily, but also the secondary application of paying your taxes, giving to the government. Again, couldn't have planned it any better. Just coming off tax season, this will be really apt and uh, hopefully you will have paid your taxes by now. But if not, maybe this will be convicting for you. And we'll get into the reasons why that is. 
So they'll, they'll be trying to trap Jesus in this second part, and Jesus will give them, uh, he will escape the trap, and he will give them actually an opportunity to, he'll teach them about what it means to worship God and who their true allegiance should be to, to God alone. So first, wedding clothes of a changed life, Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. Before I forget, Eloise, I forgot, the key word is the wedding. Wedding. Wedding is the key word. If you want to keep track, keeping notes of that. How many times I say the word wedding. So hear the word of the Lord today. Let us seek to understand and apply this to our lives. Matthew 22, verse 1. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in, in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. So here we have another one of Jesus's parables. And uh, which is a parable is a story being used to illustrate some truths about what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like. And we must remember that not everything in the story has a one-to-one comparison to something in reality. Not everything in the story has a one-in-one comparison to something in reality. For example, if someone were to say that you are as busy as a bee, that doesn't mean that you find your uh, primary source of income through the production of honey. It does not. It just means that you're busy, right? It's an illustration. It's a story to, to teach us something. So we must be careful not to overinterpret the parables of Jesus, but to seek to uh, find uh, what is going on, what the truth he's trying to tell us here. And so the basic outline, the cheat sheet, so to speak, of the parable will be four main characters and things to look out for. So the king in the parable, that's, that's obviously God. And the king's son is Jesus. Okay? And then the wedding banquet will be the kingdom of God, eternal life. And then the wedding clothes that we'll see is a main, it will be near the end. The wedding clothes that the man is supposed to wear, he's supposed to have a changed life from salvation. He was supposed to have true faith that leads to a changed life. That's what the wedding clothes are going to be. And so let's continue this parable, Jesus, in verse 3. So the, there's a wedding banquet, and he, sent, he says he sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. How odd. Why would they not want to come to the wedding banquet for the king's son? Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. He says, Try to convince them. Show them what we have. We have the food. We will take care of them. It'll be a great time. They're invited. Get them to come. Now, those invited likely refer to the people who heard Jesus preach They heard about Jesus. They heard the message of his disciples that went out and told people about the kingdom of God to repent and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They were invited to have the gift of eternal life, invited into the kingdom of God by turning from their sin and turning to trust in Jesus. They tried to show how great the kingdom of God is. But what happens in verse 5? They paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm and another to his business. They had better things to do than go to the kingdom of God. They had better things to go to do than go to this wedding banquet, which is eternal life. 
They would rather work at their farm. They would rather make money, pursue their business endeavors, instead of going to the royal wedding of the son of the king. Many did not listen to the message of Jesus. They were more concerned with earthly things rather than eternal things. Many people are the same way today. So preoccupied with the here and now, they give no attention to the eternal things of God. And because they are more concerned with their farms and businesses, they in effect refuse the gift. Because they paid no attention to the invitation. They did not go to the wedding. They refused the gift. They refused the invitation to eternal life. Let this be a warning to us and a reminder. Let us not lose perspective. Let us pay close attention to the word of our king. And we talk a lot about money. We talk a lot about materialism because Jesus talked about it a lot. Over and over again, we see the love of money is a real temptation. It is a real thing that people would not pay attention to the eternal kingdom because they would rather make temporary money now. These people would rather go chase money than celebrate the sun. And the, the rejection of the king does not stop here. They do not, some people, they go and they just don't care. They're kind of neutral to the king's invitation. They, they reject it. But we see even worse in verse 6. We see how, let's see here. There you go. While the rest, so the, the rest of the people that were invited, they actually, it says they seized his servants, mistreated them. That is, they talked badly about them. They mocked them. They verbally abused them. And then they killed them. They were merely inviting the people to the wedding banquet, trying to convince them how great the party would be. But the people were so despicably evil, they seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Some, sometimes people are so entrenched in their sin, they respond in anger to the gospel message. They killed many of the Old Testament prophets that tried to lead the people to the heavenly banquet of eternal life. Many rejected John the Baptist and will continue to reject and even persecute Jesus and his followers. Persecution for inviting people into eternal life is not gone away. It even happens today. Nevertheless, we are called to continue to share the message, despite the persecution, even in the face of persecution, so that some might be saved and enter into eternal life. Because we don't know who will accept the invitation. The invitation will go out to all, as we see this um, in the next coming verses. But what will happen to these servants who reject the invitation, who kill the king's servants? Verse 7. The king was enraged and he sent his troops, killed those murderers and burned down their city. The people faced the consequence for the rejection of the king's invitation and for killing the king's servants. They paid the price for their evil crimes. God is a God of justice. It will not let sin go unpunished. Sometimes God's justice occurs in this life. As some see this verse as a reference to God's justice in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Even in this view, if you do take this burning down of the city as a prophetic pronouncement on the destruction of Jerusalem, we see God's grace in this. Because the destruction of Jerusalem wouldn't happen for another almost 40 years. 
They had 40 years to repent, to, to turn to Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. God is patient. He wants all people to come to salvation. We see the grace of God in the Apostle Paul's life. The, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church. He persecuted people that were following Jesus. He was like these murderers, for he persecuted the church. But God was gracious to transform even Paul. He transformed Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer. A persecutor of Jesus changed to a proclaimer of Jesus. Because God can do the impossible. He can change anyone. He can change anyone's heart of sin into a heart of faith. But we must not presume upon God's grace and patience. Because there will be a day of judgment where all sins will be accounted for. Either Jesus will take the punishment for you, or you will have to face the judgment for your sin yourself. The invitation is open today. Invitation for forgiveness. Invitation for eternal life. Don't wait. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Not even guaranteed our next moment. And we see the invitation continues to go out in verse 8. Despite the rejection, the king tells his servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were not invited were not worthy. They show that they were not worthy because they rejected the invitation. They show that they were not worthy because they killed the servants. But God is, again, he's gracious, and the call of salvation continues to go out. He says, go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. Everyone you find. Go to the, the crossroads and everybody going in and out of the city. Invite them all. Now, when Rachel and I were married and we had our wedding festivities, we did not advertise our wedding to the public. We did not post it in the paper. We invited our special friends, our family members. Um, so this is a very strange move by the king. So if you had a special people invited before and they rejected the invitation, what do you think is going to happen with, if you invite everybody to the banquet? This seems very strange. But here we see God's grace. That he invites all people to his kingdom. Invites all people into eternal life. It doesn't matter who they were or what they've done. We should imitate our king in this. Inviting all people to the kingdom of God. And inviting and obeying his command to make disciples of all nations. As we see the servants obey the king in verse 10. The servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found both evil and good. Both evil and good. Another interesting phrase here in the story. They invite evil and good. And really, we know that everyone is technically in the evil category, right? Because Jesus pointed to, Jesus told us this in Matthew nineteen seventeen. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. That's God. It isn't us. It isn't anyone but Jesus. God, he's the only one who is good. So Jesus invited tax collectors. He invited prostitutes. We too are to invite everybody, both evil and those people who think that they're good. I think that maybe that's what he's going at here. Both evil and good. Those people that are uh, think that they're evil, that they know that they're against God, but even we're trying to invite those people that are self-righteous. We invite people that may look good on the outside, but are wicked on the inside like the Pharisees. 
the religious leaders of the day who thought they didn't need a savior. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need saving from their sin because they thought they were good enough. So we need to invite both the unrighteous and the self-righteous because both need the saving righteousness of Jesus. However, as we will see, while all were invited, not all come dressed appropriately. And so the wedding banquet was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. He did not have his wedding clothes on. And so he said to him, friend. And the word for friend here is not really a, uh, it's more of like, hey, buddy, I don't know your name kind of phrase. And this word for friend will be used uh, two other places, only in the Gospel of Matthew, once in reference to Judas, who will betray Jesus. And Jesus will call him friend. So he's not really a friend. And we'll see this in, in the next verse. He says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The man had no argument. He had no reason to give why he didn't have his wedding clothes. The man was uh, not supposed to be even allowed in the wedding banquet unless he had the proper clothing. Namely, not his work clothes or just his everyday clothes, but his special white wedding clothes. Now, Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about a dress code for church attendance. That is abundantly clear. I don't think any commentaries would argue that. But for some reason, I would think some people might appeal to this verse to say, that's why you got to come dressed up to church. But he's not talking about dress code for church attendance. It's fine to dress up. It's fine not to. But what's most important is he's talking about a spiritual dress code. He's talking about a spiritual dress code that matches what you say you believe. So a spiritual dress code that matches what you say you believe. This fits right in with what we learned two weeks ago, that true belief leads to obedience. If you say you believe in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King, then you're going to look different. You're going to be a different person. You're going to have new desires. You're going to follow God. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it speaks of being dressed with a new character, new virtues, a new ethic. And Revelation 19, 7 and 8 makes this clear with the idea of white wedding garments, referring to the obedience of those who have been adopted into God's family, who have been uh, bought with Jesus's blood, who are the bride of Christ, the church. We see this in Revelation 19, 7. He says, let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. I'm so thankful that John makes it super clear what the imagery is supposed to mean. Because sometimes the imagery is not so clear. and We don't get that helpful interpretation. But he's super clear that the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So the question for us is, do you have your wedding garments on? Is your life characterized by righteous acts? In other words, has God changed you? Has he given you a new heart that seeks to obey his commands, that seeks to love God and love your neighbor? And notice, where did you get these wedding clothes from? It says that they, they were given to the saints. God gives us this. It is all by the grace of God. 
Again, we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, which results, which results in God's graciously bestowing on us good works. We just have to walk in them. And he empowers us by his spirit to do this. So if you're here today and realize that you have no pure white wedding clothes, don't be the man in the story in verse 12. For when asked, how did you get in here? He says he was speechless. I don't want you to be speechless on the day of judgment. He has no defense. He was speechless. He has no excuse for your actions. We have no excuse. You've heard the invitation. You've heard how to get your wedding clothes. You've heard how to be saved, how to have a changed heart that seeks to obey God. It is through seeing Jesus for who he is, trusting him as your God, as your savior, as your king, seeing your sin for what it is, and acting on your belief. True belief leads to action. So for with the wedding clothes, if you do have wedding clothes on, if you have the gift of God, of eternal life, but you will face the same consequences if you do not, as the speechless, ill-dressed man. Because what will happen in verse 13? The king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, Throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you might say, whoa, whoa, what's going on? He just didn't have his wedding clothes on. Because remember, this is not just about a wedding. This is about the eternal life. This is about the kingdom of God. Because in the language used here is the language of eternal judgment. Jesus wants to make sure that we don't miss what's at stake. His actions of disobedience, the man's actions of rebellion against the eternal God, he showed his true belief by his actions. And he must face the consequences of the eternal God who is just and does not let sin go unpunished. And darkness here refers to the place far away from God, far away from God's light, God's presence. He is cast from the brightly lit banquet hall. He does not get to enjoy the presence of the king, nor any of the blessings of the king, the food, the shelter, the celebration. Instead, he will experience the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It portrays the unspeakable anguish of separation from God. This frightening imagery marks one of the most sobering moments of Matthew's story of Jesus. And Jesus concludes the parable with this last statement, summarizing the interpretation of the story. He says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. The point being that many are invited into the kingdom of God. However, only a few are chosen. That is, only a few truly believe, shown by their repentance of sin and commitment to follow God's ways. Again, showing that salvation is by God's grace, as we looked at what it means to be chosen last week in 1 Peter. For to be chosen is to be given pure white clothes. To be chosen is to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, forgiven in order to be free from sin, and live in obedience to God by the power of God, to the glory of God. For to be chosen is to be given pure white clothes, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So just like the Pharisees knew he was speaking about them in the previous parables, they probably realized that Jesus is speaking about them again in this parable. They are the ones without the wedding clothes. 
And they will respond in hatred toward Jesus again, and they will try to trap him. Because while they may have their clean, physical, religious clothing on, their actions show that they had on spiritual rags. As we turn to our next section in verse 16. 15, sorry. So then the Pharisees went out after hearing this parable. They're like, I think he's talking about us. Well, we're going to go and just basically uh, fulfill what he said. And they're going to try to trap him. They're going to try to get him arrested and killed. They're going to try to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are a new character on the scene. They were supporters and the political allies of King Herod. And he was Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, which is very important for the question they will ask Jesus. Because if Jesus uh, should express any opposition to paying taxes, the Herodians, the people that were in support of the political King Herod, they were going to report that back to him and get Jesus arrested. But in order to try to hide their intentions, they begin with flattery. It says They say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. Right. <laughs> you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. They're really trying to get on his good side. And they say, and then here comes the question. Here's the trap. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So Caesar is the ruler of Rome. He is everything against the Jewish nation. They do not like paying taxes. That's why tax collectors were so hated. That's why we see the grace of God so tremendously in calling Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple. And they ask him, do you pay taxes? Do you think it's right to pay taxes to Caesar? And if he says that it is... The people who were following him, who thought that he was going to be a political messiah, who thought that he was going to overthrow Rome, they would likely turn against Jesus at this point. But if he said it is not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be reported and arrested. So how will Jesus get out of this trap? He says, perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? And here's the answer. Show me the coin used for the tax. Show me the coin used for the tax. So he's, he's, he knows he's being trying to be tricked, and he will use this opportunity to teach them something about God and humanity and use an illustration of a coin for tax. And so they, they bring him the, a Daenerys, and he asks in verse 20, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. They were left speechless. He did not fall into their trap, but instead taught them something significant about what it means to live for God. And this is why they were amazed. Because Jesus said in verse 21, he says, basically, pay your taxes Because whose inscription is on, whose image is on the coin? It is Caesar's. So if it's Caesar's, give what he owes. Give give to him what is his. However, he doesn't just stop there. He says, give to God the things that are God's. But the question is, what belongs to God? Where is his image stamped? Well, first, everything belongs to God. 
Super clear, Psalm 24. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. He created it all. It's all His. But specifically, humans belong to God, and we are made in His image. We are stamped with the image of God. So Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. So while they are to pay taxes to Caesar, Caesar doesn't own everything. That's what he's making the point. He's saying, give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate king. Caesar is just a temporary king in a temporary kingdom. Caesar doesn't own everything. We are not made in the image of Caesar. Caesar was not God, no matter if he claimed to be, as he did. We are made in God's image. He created us in everything. Thus, our ultimate allegiance is to him. Our lives and everything we have are to be given for God. So yes, pay your taxes. Be honest about your income. Respect the authorities. Even if the ruler of your country, wherever you may live, even if that ruler says he is divine, if he says he's God, like Caesar did in Rome, Now, for us in America, you are going to disagree with the government on something. You're going to disagree with how your taxes are used. And I understand that. Jesus did not agree with everything the taxes that the Roman government was using them for. He did not even agree with how the temple tax was being used for. But he still paid it to respect the authority. And we don't have to agree on everything. You can vote. You can vote to change the things in America. And you can stand up for what you believe and have your opinion. And as we learn through the Baptist Faith and Message on Wednesday nights, we talk about how we are to change society. And one of the greatest things, one of the greatest tools and methods we have to change society is by sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel with your neighbor, your family member, your coworker, And you change one person at a time change their heart, that's how you really influence society as a whole. Now, on the flip side, Jesus is also teaching us that no political leader is God. No political leader is God. We are not to worship anyone but God. And if you believe you are made in God's image image, and that you belong to him, does your life reflect that belief? What do you give your life to? Is your life consumed with work, politics, comfort, entertainment, or even family and friends? Is that what your life is consumed by? Does your family and friends own you? Now, all those things can be good. Friends, family, work, politics, comfort, entertainment. Those can be good. They are good gifts to us from God. But the problem comes when we make all those good things God things. Is God your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate authority? Do you give your life to him or someone or something else? What is your ultimate hope in? It goes back to the theme that true belief leads to obedience. True belief and trust in God will result in giving yourself to him, giving up your life for the mission of God, to live as he created you to live. So don't leave here amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Oh, wow, he got out of that trap. He's a really good teacher. Leave here changed by the blood of Jesus to follow after him the rest of your days. And as we move into a time of response, 
Praise God for what he's done for you in Jesus. Praise God for giving you the wedding clothes. Praise God for his grace and forgiveness for making you white as snow. Praise God and dedicate yourself to live for the Lord. Commit your whole life to him for he owns it. In fact, you are doubly owned by God if you are in Christ. Because first, he created you. You are made in his image. And second, he bought you at the cross. Jesus paid the ransom price. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price. And if you are bought at a price, if you are saved by the blood of Jesus, glorify God with your body. Act out what you say you believe. So let us stand and praise God together.